Good afternoon, and welcome to another episode of Artbeat. I'm Daniel Fitzmorris, the Executive Director at the Arts Council of Greater New Haven. We're streaming live at WNHH 103.5 FM New Haven and newhavenindependent.org from the WNHH Community Radio's offices on Elm Street. This and all WNHH episodes are also available for streaming as a podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud. And today on Artbeat, I am really pleased to spend the whole episode talking about Enlightened Princesses, which is uh, an exhibit that's currently on view at the Yale Center for British Art through April 30th. And it's really a joy. I've got um, two of the curators here um, to talk about the exhibit, Lisa Ford and Tyler Griffith. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And hello, Tyler. Thank you, Daniel. Great to hear you. So, um... The thing, uh, I, I gave you all the shortest little descriptors about who you are. You're just curators, but I know you have bigger titles and you have more to say about who you are and um, what work you do at the Yale Center for British Art and what work you put into this exhibit, Enlightened Princesses. Um, why don't we start with you, Tyler, who's calling in. What, what is your work at the center? Um, how did you contribute to this exhibit? Thanks, Daniel. Yeah, I actually just graduated last year uh, from the PhD program, and um, you know, Amy, the director of the center, was one of my first bosses on campus, and she sort of called me and said, "Hey, uh, did you find a job yet?" And I said, ah, "A couple offers, but nothing too juicy." I said, "Don't do anything. I've got the perfect assignment." <laughs> and you know, I said, "Oh, I'm flattered, but uh, you know, I got to think about it." And then she described the show, and boy, oh boy, talk about a blockbuster! I mean. It's a really compelling sort of feminist retelling of the 18th century from the perspectives of these three women, big international show, 51 lenders, 300 objects. And I just, uh, I couldn't, couldn't refuse. So took me on board and I sort of entered it about two years ago. And Lisa will know in more detail, but you know, they've been planning this show for about seven years. Wow. Uh, she and Joanna Marshner, the uh, director of the, Kensington Palace and Historic Royal Palace System. And when I came on board, we were sort of finalizing object selections and uh, really just on the cusp of approaching lenders. So um, we did the final bits of the research uh, and, and I on some of the um, wider world elements, imperialism, imperialism and medicine and history of medicine with my colleague Sam at uh, HRP. And then it was all about getting the loan letters out and trying to finalize, um, get a, get a, I guess, a concrete idea of what was realistic to travel mm-hmm. because the trip over the Atlantic can be very grueling and demanding on, on fine art. So, um, getting a sense of what was realistic and how we could structure the show at the YCBA in, in counterpoint to the discussion that's going to take place at Kensington. So. Wow, a little other. bit of this, a little bit of that, and definitely a great experience. <laughs> that's that's putting it lightly. A little bit of this, a little bit of that, and you've <laughs> opened up all sorts <laughs> no. of all sorts of great questions we'll get to cover. But I definitely want to make sure everybody meets Lisa. Hello. Hi. Hello. So, as Tyler was saying, this has been going along for a while. Um, the discussions, the lead into uh, the exhibition, the planning of it. Uh, over the last four or five years, we've done a couple of workshop sort of um, arrangements where people who are interested in the topic have come and we've asked them to congregate and present objects they thought would be of interest, objects they thought would make 
a real interesting statement in the show. We had a conference at Hampton Court Palace a few years ago to talk about the Enlightened Princesses, presentations by people who both have been involved in the catalogue of the show and people who had an interest again to kind of see how the ideas formed up and what things caught attention and what really brought interesting moments of these princesses' lives to the public, the kinds of things we really wanted to feature, which goes into creating the themes, the ideas, the stuff that goes in the walls and what you really think people are going to say, yeah, that's fascinating to me. Wow. Well, don't be shy. Who, what are you doing at the center? You are on staff at the, at the Center for British Art. I am. I am the Assistant Director of Research, which is a title that may not be very self-explanatory. I am in the research department, um, which is the area of the British Art Center that both, the best way to explain it probably is bring people in to do research, assist them in that, and create the methods and ways by which they explicate their research. So it's bringing along everything from students, graduate and interns, um, undergraduate students at Yale into the building to engage with our stuff, with our ideas, with our departments, and also bringing visiting scholars internationally that come here to do very specific work on our mm. exhibitions and on our, um, on our stuff and tell people all about it. And also creating workshops, conferences, seminars, ways in which the things in our building, the exhibitions they're engaged in, all of that is being formed into ideas, concepts, papers, presentations that tell people about the British Art Centre and the significance of its stuff and what we're doing. Hmm. I love how you call it stuff. stuff. All this stuff we have, it's lots of good stuff, stuff. you keep from it's the British. Great stuff. <laughs> Our, I, I always ask whether or not guests are artists, and it's fun when, when the British Art Centre is on because it, you run the spectrum as whether mm. you're an artist mm. or an historian, or how do you define your, your art, uh, Lisa? Well, that's an interesting question. On the one hand, I should tell you that I'm actually, my uh, PhD was in Tudor history. Oh, okay. So I'm actually a Tudor historian who, over the years I've worked at the British Arts Centre, has developed a very distinctive interest in the visual and material culture, particularly relating to politics. Mm -hmm. um, I am wow. an artist as well. I've done sketching, drawing, watercolour, dabbled in all kinds of things since I was in grade school, and also created costumes of the 16th and 17th centuries so i've kind of tried a little bit of everything wow. so the artistic aspects of things i can relate to as well yeah how about you tyler are you defining yourself as an artist a visual artist a historian something of the both um you know i, I mean i would say a museum man kind of through and through that's a nice I, title I, museum be, man yeah museum man because uh i i discovered when I was applying to PhDs, I never wanted to be a professor, you have to understand. And it's very uncommon even these days to apply to PhD programs, in my case, history of science and medicine, uh, without the intention of entering a professorial mm -hmm. career. But Yale was the one place that sort of heard my story and didn't look at me like I was a madman. And they said, actually, you know, we've got great collections and you might, uh, you might uh, like doing your PhD at Yale because all of the museums are very um, well integrated with the academic faculties, as Lisa knows, and Lisa kind of hooked me up uh, at the outset five or six years ago and told me about the uh, this program called the Graduate Research Associate, and that kind of sealed the deal. And what I find so interesting about museums is that you get to work, you get to tell intellectual stories, 
All right, it could be history, history of ideas. It could be visual art stories, more conventional art history. But you also get to work with objects. You get to work with people. You get to work with far-reaching institutions and organizations. And it really produces an exciting atmosphere. And all of the things that museums do, I find really compelling. And I like mm. that there's, there's always such a mix of ideas and individuals, artists, art historians, academics, the public children, you know, talking eight-year-olds, we get something like <laughs> that's, you know, you know, 10,000 K-12 students a year or what have you. And that's just an experience in a, in a, in a diversity that is so hard to encounter in any other sort of professional environment. It's just, it's absolutely thrilling every day. Yeah, you still get to teach, just not exactly in the same PhD structure as you might have, might have planned, might have planned. Um, well, and you guys have worked together very closely, even though physically we're not together. So I'm going to throw the question out there. Who's the bigger history buff? Mm, well, <laughs> Lisa. <laughs> All right. I'll take, I'll take that. Thanks. Well, then, because what's so great about shows at the British Art Center is there's so much context that we could bring. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and I guess one way to start by explaining that context, I, I've, we've said enlightened princesses lots of time, which mm-hmm. leaves a lot to be still understood. We're not talking about Elsa. I don't think you're specifically, the subtitle of the show is Caroline, Augusta, Charlotte, and the Shaping of the Modern World. So how can you, you know, how does that subtitle bring context? What's the history? What's happening politically, socially at the time um, this work was created? Who are these people? Well, that's exactly the point. I mean, one of the things about it is enlightened princesses. And as you said, the, the word princesses has so many resonances. In this case, it's the common sta- status that all of these women had at one point because Augusta, the central one, never becomes Queen of England because her husband okay. dies before he's got the throne. Um, the idea is that we have, and we did this several years ago with Mary Granville Delaney, if you mm-hmm. remember the Mrs. Delaney exhibition. We have three women who, of course, you've seen them in those grand state portraits. Of course, you know they were the wives of these men. But what more do you know about them? Who are they? What really were they interested in? How did they engage those interests? What kinds of things are they bringing to the role of consort? And this is a time when the the roles of monarchy are shifting a bit, when monarchy is becoming more parliamentary and becoming less um, authoritative, when the monarchy is beginning, and this, this goes into the ideas of shaping of the modern world, the monarchy is beginning to find what is our role when we are no longer that explicitly in charge. And what year is this about then when we're talking about this shift happening politically? We're talking about the... Um, the shift between the 17th and 18th century, mm-hmm. the shift in particular from the Stuarts to the Hanoverian monarchs. Okay. And so these women are, in their ways, helping to develop and create the role of consort, which actually probably is much more familiar to the kinds of ways that we see the royal princesses in England operating today. The move towards well, the first ladies philanthropy, yes, of yes. the United States, yeah, right? There's sure. like Michelle Obama would have an appropriate place at an exhibit like this, not necessarily of art, but of 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 culture, of mm-hmm, holding culture mm-hmm. as an important aspect um, of the work. Yeah. No, that that's a good that's a good place to go. And so, Caroline Augusta and Charlotte um, is the work limited to those three artists? 
to those three or is, are there more <clears throat> than just their work the listed it, it says it's um the the subtitle is caroline augusta and charlotte and the shaping of the modern world so mm-hmm. have you brought in other objects and pieces that that support that or are you going to see work just by these um well actually it's it's not it's not the royal women as artists mm-hmm. it's the royal women as philanthropists mm-hmm. and um as court builders of court culture creators of intellectual and salon culture the objects are all about explaining, for example, you have the state portraits because that shows you that ostensible immediate role that everybody knows. But then you go into bays where you have all of these representations of physicians who are mm-hmm. developing the interesting aspects of the Enlightenment and of Enlightenment culture and the ideas that are creating what looks more like modern medicine than the mm-hmm. kinds of things that you've been used to. And so we have the portraits of Hunter, William Hunter, who's creating new ideas about obstetrics. And we have pictures of the Foundling Hospital, which is a great philanthropic um, foundation mm-hmm. to take the orphan children, the, the abandoned children of London, and help them to live and to develop apprenticeships and careers of some sort to help create the population of London into a healthier, better educated more functional population. And these are all things these women are engaged with. That is the shaping of the modern world. Exactly. As we know it. Exactly. Well, I want to take something you said, Lisa, and and toss it over to Tyler, um, because I'm also interested in this, and I'm glad you just said it outright, which is that this is is a feminist show. This is a feminist show that takes place in the 17th and the 18th centuries, essentially. Does that resonate with you, Tyler? Is there a thread to that um, about the, the, the... the feminist nature of the of the collection. Yeah, I mean, um, Lisa kind of hit the nail on the head and and saying or suggesting, you know, a lot of the interesting stuff that actually happened in the 18th century in Britain was not the result of what the guys were doing. Mm-hmm. You know, the, we call it the Georgian period. It's this and that. It's all the conventional history that's been told from the guy's point of view, so to speak. And But it, we discovered as we were poking around that so many of these interesting movements, intellectually, politically, culturally, were either at the direct sponsorship or patronage of Caroline, Augusta, and Charlotte, or through, you know, informal channels. We're talking obstetrics, gynecology, smallpox inoculation, dance, calculus, think of Newton, right, who Mm. Caroline eventually hired as the math tutor for her kids, right? I mean, that's like hiring Stephen Hawking to be your kid's math tutor. (laughs) Really having (laughs) the leeway um, financially and practically to create these compelling courts and informal social networks where interesting ideas would be discussed. And partially, you know, it was just necessity. I mean, the Kings had the very serious responsibility of running the, the military. You know, my dad was in the military. I know that's a full-time job. So the idea of afterwards having um, these kind of salons or something like that, it's a daunting task. But mm-hmm. fortunately, the women had both the finances and really the responsibility to take what they had been exposed to in Germany. Right? Keep in mind, these are German women, right. the seat of the Enlightenment. And and import it to Britain. And they really interpreted that as part of their duty as the new queen consort, the new ruling women of Britain, um, to do that. And one second, excuse me. Um, what makes it so interesting is that we noticed when we were doing our workshops and everything with academics and with, um, 
vocal artists and professionals. Everyone wanted to hijack this show. <laughs> Meaning? So we'd be explaining it to a, you know, a group of physicists or a group right. of dancers or what have you. And they say, oh, no, 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 you, you got it wrong. This has to be a show about the history of dance. Or this has to be a show of the history of optics. And that led us to, you know, really think, well, why is it that all these modern people who aren't historians really by any stretch want, find it so compelling? And the reason is all these, the activities and the passions and the interests of these women have left such a concrete legacy on almost every imaginable field of the 21st century that it became obvious that what they were doing was not just a historical blip. It, it really shaped the way we see ourselves in the world and the limits and possibilities of human endeavor mm, um, because of, yeah, because of the um, support that these women gave. And, and to take that a little further, Tyler, did these women, like how we sometimes associate, you know, the, the visionary men or, you know, visionary people in our world, I mean, what was their relationship with each other, if anything? Um, I don't know. Lisa knows this a little bit better. They kind of, I hate to, this is very, uh, rough, but the guys generally did not get along with the generation above them. Okay. Right. So George the second didn't really get along with George the first, George the third and George the second, et cetera. But though among the women, I, they had very, certainly rarely antagonistic and often very, um, positive relationships. I'm thinking of Caroline and her daughter-in-law, Augusta, for instance, who of course never became queen consort because mm -hmm. her husband, Frederick, who was Caroline's son, died in a sporting accident before he could inherit the throne. What do you think, Lisa? Did they, were they friendly? Were they plotting this together? Or is this, I, I, obviously it's not happenstance because they had a lot of vision, but is it a collective vision that you think they shared and passed on? Or um, are we putting this together now? Well, it's, they each have their areas that they seem to be very comfortable with engaging and their ways of engaging. Caroline is very, very intellectual, has mm -hmm. been acknowledged, and she's interested in the salon culture. She's interested in bringing together the great thinkers. She's interested in making the court of mm -hmm. an intellectual focus. She and Augusta, yes, they get along very well, and there doesn't seem to be any tensions there. The same with Augusta and Charlotte. They seem to get along very well, so well, in fact, that they end up being the two people who really uh, develop Hugh Gardens, and they actually develop it partly because they buy estates right next to each other that ultimately become what is now the bulk, the, bulk, the basis of Hugh Gardens. Oh, I didn't know that. And so you do have in that case a, a queen and her daughter-in-law both being part of this development, but in different ways. Mm -hmm. Augusta is seeing it, envisioning it as both a botanical garden, a great repository of things being collected from all over the empire, at the same time that she's building interesting and curious buildings, mm -hmm. a mosque, a Chinese bridge, a famous pagoda. And when Charlotte gets around to her part in Kew Gardens, it begins developing, and she's much more focused on the botanical aspects. She's very interested in botany, and she's very interested, in, again, in the continuing collections of the empire, but not so much in the, in, no more in the kinds of building things. Mm -hmm. it's, it's when Kew Gardens, under the um, direction of Joseph Banks, really begins to become that model of the botanical storehouse and scientific place of knowledge that it's beginning, that it's absolutely, you know, epitomizes today. And she's... Um, doing things like she's the one that's providing to Mrs. Delaney 
plants from the garden for Mrs. W's paper collages, and she and her wow. daughters are sketching. They're very interested in botany, and there's beautiful botanical drawings by her and some of her daughters. So Charlotte's interests are are more, I'd say, domestic and mm-hmm. more, more intellectual. She likes to create. She likes to be occupied. Is a very important thing to her. I can see that, yeah. yeah. Well, and that's good. I think now that we have a little bit of context, what always interests me, and, and you started talking about this, Lisa, and then we'll, we'll pass it off to Tyler, but the, the idea, how do you get this idea? You said it was seven years ago, the planning for this starts. I don't think people realize how much thought goes into it, or um, you know, where does the grain of idea come from? Is that from Amy Myers? Is that from you? Is that... The story that that has um, that I understand is that Amy and Joanna Marshner, the curator at Kensington Palace, senior curator at Kensington Palace, who is the lead curator for this exhibition, had a conversation on the heels of the Mrs. Delaney exhibition about Hugh Gardens, about where that came from, because Joanna wrote her PhD and has published a wonderful book on Queen Caroline. Mm-hmm. And she was interested in, because, as I said, Kew Gardens kind of goes all the way back to there because Caroline actually buys a property, Richmond Lodge, that eventually be, is where it all starts. She's not an, as interested in developing the botanical aspects. Mm-hmm. Her garden is more of a public place with folly buildings and, and a private, well, public and private, the folly buildings that people come to look at, the private aspects of it for a domestic life for the mm-hmm. royal family. And... It was from there and the idea of looking at Caroline and the other Hanoverian royal women and the ways in which their lives intersected in these different developments. That conversation, as I said, right on the heels of the Delaney exhibition, developed into, right, so this sounds like a great idea. Let's it's kind of a it spin-off. Yeah, there you go. Not a sequel, but it's sort of like a little spin-off. There you go. And I should, and it's probably worth mentioning, kind of funny right now, but this this trip, it's going to go on tour. That's what you're saying. There's this relationship between um, both of these museums mm-hmm. to, to host the exhibit. I mm-hmm. forget the dates when it's going to travel. Um, but that's is that pretty unique? Is that very common for the Yale Center for British Art to partner on an exhibit like this? Absolutely. Most of our exhibitions have partners and, and generally partners in the UK. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, the exhibition will close here on the 30th of April. And then it will open again in Kensington Palace in London on the 22nd of June. That's right. And it'll be open there through November so that, that everyone, I mean, they get millions of visitors to London, as you can well imagine, over the course of a summer. And it will be there for all to understand, to appreciate, and to really get to see what these women are all about. Kensington Palace version. Mm-hmm, right. So you have, and, and, and Tyler, speak to this a little bit, because you mentioned all of the you have this idea and then you have to go out and, and find objects and decide what's feasible and what's not feasible to bring in. So I, what is that process like? How do you go through that? It sounds like there's this big creative idea, you know, let's get everything we could possibly get. But then there's a practical side of it that it sounded like um, you were aware of too. Oh, yeah. Well, imagine about I don't know, eight inches of manila folders, each one stuffed with hundreds of potential objects that were owned by, you know, Caroline Augusta or Charlotte from 120 lenders across the world and, of you know, thousands of objects and then trying to select a few hundred from that giant stack that are the most applicable to the stories you're trying to tell. Oh, so that's a so big skate. You know, you go down to a hundred. We got down to about yeah, I think the final number is 292 for wow. Yale. 
Wow. A little bit smaller at Kensington. So that's a huge, you know, uh, vetting process. And every single object, uh, you know, whether or not we decided to pursue it as a loan or not, um, we would discuss in incredible depth. Uh, I mean, you know, afternoons were spent just talking about which camera obscuras to, to borrow. Um, of the, you know, 10 that were out there mm-hmm. and settling on the final, most representative and most applicable object that combined both the beauty and the, of, of a, a, a beautiful fine art aesthetic object with the story, with the provenance, you know, it was owned by Charlotte or it was given to Charlotte by Zoffany or something along these lines. Um, it was an, it's an incredible um, process and very demanding in terms of research and work and trying to and really refining what you want your visitors to see and the stories you want them to leave um to take home and tell their their, their family about mm-hmm. right i get the impression that there's quite a range of types of objects in this exhibit which might be different than some you know british art exhibits um are there any, you know, what kind of pieces, you know, what two or three pieces or objects could you put out there for folks who are listening to describe that range? Oh, I love it. And I, I really love how Amy and Lisa and really the, the British Arts Center in general do shows. They're very, they're very visceral. And, you know, um, people could come to this show, your listeners, just to see the Ramsey portraits. You know, we have a dozen of his best portraits that he ever made or the Reynolds portraits or the Zoffanies, what have you. But there are also scientific instruments, handwritten catalogs mm-hmm. of the belongings of the of the queens and princess, auction catalogs for um, their belongings after they died or as they were trying to raise money, um, sketches, etchings, great these beautiful, great botanical volumes that you know are the size of coffee tables, hand colored, um, field sketches textiles. I mean, you want to talk about beautiful dresses. We've got two 18th century pieces and uh, a modern or contemporary response by Inka Shunabare. Um, I don't think you can have a princess exhibit without a few beautiful dresses. (laughs) What about (laughs) you? You know what? (laughs) I wanted to try to get the crown, but people thought I was crazy. Oh, well, maybe next time (laughs) with a spin-off of this exhibit. (laughs) Any favorite objects for you, Lisa? Standout pieces that if you know if you come, you should make sure to find this. Well, I have to say, and and most people that I've I've raved to about this have agreed with me. And being a Tudor historian, of course, that was going to catch my eye. One of the things in the exhibition that I'm just so enthralled by is we have two of the sketches done by Hans Holbein of the court of Henry VIII, mm. which is a very very famous set of sketches that he did of people across Henry VIII's court and some of which were developed into portraits. One of them, the, the sketch of uh, Thomas Lestrange, we have a male and female um, figures, has had portraits done of it, one of um, which is in the Kimball. And the other one, the Lady Lister is the way her drawing is labeled, but we're not sure exactly which Lady Lister. So this mm. is one of those interesting historical mysteries. But they're beautiful sketches, original Holbeins. As I said, we've ne- we have never had original Holbein drawings from that set in the building. So for us, that's first. And it's a big moment because they don't travel. I think some of them have traveled to the U.S. maybe twice in the last 50 years. So that's so, something to go see then. Definitely. <laughs> they won't and, be back. <laughs> and the other thing, as Tyler was talking about the dresses, both for the beauty of them, we've got a proper court mantua with the huge 
petticoats, undercarriage. But we also have a fabulous, fabulous loan from the Smithsonian of an 18th century silk dress with a fascinating story behind it that forms the basis of the bay where the Inca Shonabari, um sculpture is. And the dress was produced, it was made in London from silk produced on a South Carolina plantation for a woman named Eliza Lucas Pinckney. Mm. And also in that bay, the other interesting thing that I think people would really enjoy is there's a letter loaned to us by the Colonial Dames of South Carolina written by Eliza Lucas Pinckney to a friend describing her two-hour audience with Princess Augusta and her children and the entirety of the conversation with all its strange little things, everything from a recipe for dressing turtle to hurricanes and earthquakes and whether they have them in South Carolina. And it's just fascinating. That is interesting. That's very interesting. We've got a transcription of it, so you don't have to worry about trying to read what's (laughs) on that letter in the case. (laughs) You can listen. 18th century handwriting is, is tough. And the dress itself, it's one of the Smithsonian's national treasures, and it's a beautiful piece as well. And then Yinka brings it all together in his sculpture, which is uh, all about Mrs. Pinckney, the culture of her plantation and the slaves that created the silk from which that dress was woven. The head of the figure is a cage because Mm. they brought, um, the Pinckney family brought Princess Augusta birds from South Carolina because she was very interested in birds. Mm -hmm. They knew this, and they brought three for her aviary. And the as I said, the head of the sculpture is an open cage, and the birds are free and perched on the figure. So this female figure in this dress that looks like the Pinckney dress but is made out of African-influenced textiles with these birds flying free from the cage, it's a very interesting interpretation of this story that Yinka's produced. Wow, wow. Well, take us one more step behind the scenes, and, and the question to get there is really, what are the what were the challenges in putting all of this together. And I, maybe now is a great time to think about it. You're halfway through the exhibit, right? It's been open um, for a couple of uh, months already. So what, what, what are the obstacles to doing this kind of work? Hmm. You talked, Tyler, earlier about, for example, the obstacle of literally bringing work from all of these places. Art is not a friendly travel friend. Yeah, I mean, I would say the the biggest challenge, which also yields the greatest reward, is just the complexity of the show. Mm-hmm. Um, just think about the works that we borrowed, 51 objects, 100 objects from the Royal Collection, the biggest single loan they've ever made to a temporary exhibition, including the beautiful whole lines that Lisa mentioned. But there's also a book, a glorious book, 500 okay. pages, 30 chapters, all right? with something like 20 of the leading experts. These aren't, um, you know, commissions from so-and-so. These are the people who define the fields, writing from the objects that we selected Mm -hmm. and coordinating all of that, the physical space, the intellectual story of the exhibition at the YCPA, the intellectual story of the publication, and making it all a coherent and mutually complementary experience. for a reader so you can buy the catalog you can see the show and have those be in confluence with one another and telling an overarching show so that when you go to kensington right in june and see their show it's all one coherent intellectual program and to balance all these players all the whole curatorial staff the installers the scholars the public visitors the school groups the 
um, uh, visitors from other museums in the U.S. and abroad and have it be a rewarding experience for every single stakeholder from eight years old to 92 um, is a very uh, complicated <laughs> well, <laughs> and uh, that's, yeah, that is very a big nuanced challenge. process. Oh, yeah, certainly is. Any challenges that come to mind for you, Lisa? Well, I think Tyler's described it all <laughs> incredibly well. It is, it's just... It's just the, the largeness and the complexity of it. And adding on to that, other things that we were interested in trying to ensure that we incorporated are things like one of the bays is devoted to music, which mm-hmm. was a very, very strong interest of Charlotte's and the royal family. And we have places there where you can listen to clips of the music of the great musicians, Haydn and Bach and, and Abel, who are all at the court. And Right near that, we've got a bay where actually there was a dance. There were several dances choreographed for the royal family, for the Mm. the princesses to do. And we got two masters of early dance, Ricardo Barros and Edith Lelongueil. And they came along to Kensington Palace, and we spent an afternoon filming them in proper 18th century dress, dancing one of these dances. The choreographical notation is a fascinating thing, and you can see it in the book sitting there. And you can also see it, we're projecting it on the wall downstairs Mm. in the entry court. And you look at it, it's this fascinating, interesting little intricate pattern, and Ricardo and Edith can both look at this, interpret it into steps, and they created it for us. We filmed them, and we're now projecting it on the wall of the bay. So when you're in that bay, you get to look into Kensington Palace and the King's Gallery and watch this 18th century couple do this dance up and down. It sounds like there's an, you know, all of the little pieces sound like an innovative way of presenting this innovative time, right? You know, pushing the envelope a little bit for what you can do. Um, you know, of course, that's a good time to mention can't mention it enough that the Yale Center for British Art is free. <laughs> and, and and in fact, so are many, many of the programs that are associated with this exhibit. So while you could come and, and see it for yourself, there are lots of activities, lots of things for kids and families to do to engage more deeply in all of these themes and all of these ideas, um, which I guess makes me wonder, you know, what, you know, what is it that, what is it that you would like someone to leave the exhibit feeling? We talked about lots of these themes, right? But, you know, if um, if someone's never been to the Yale Center for British Art or thinks they're not interested in British art or thinks that they're not interested in these princesses, I don't know who's not interested in princesses these days, but um, don't ask any six-year-old. Um, but, what you know, what, what's the impression you'd like people to leave with at having explored the exhibit really deeply? I mean, <clears throat> primarily... I think what I would like people to go away from it thinking is, wow, I never knew anything like that about any of those women. And or, you know, she's really interesting. I'd like to find out more about Mm. her because that fascinated me. As well as just looking at the array and, and range of things with which they're presenting them. And understanding the way in which, when you're presenting the story of the 18th century, there's so many different ways through the objects that you can give this idea, give this little moment of, oh, okay, now I see. A couple of little revelations. Exactly. What about you, Tyler? Any any sort of takeaways, if, if, if you brought your cousin to the exhibit, what would they walk away seeing, feeling? Uh, well, 
ideally they'd feel, oh, I want to come back again because it's a, mm-hmm. it's a, you know, it's a three hour exhibit really or four hours. And I can't tell, I give a lot of the tours and I can't tell you how many times I see people there again and again and again, because there's just so much to discover. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what I, what I would really like people to appreciate is very much in line with Paul Mellon's vision when he started collecting British art. Um, you know, 1940s, 50s, it's that British art and the deep, long history of British art is worth exploring. These are beautiful art was produced, paintings and sculpture and um, artisanal works, we'd call them nowadays. And you can't really understand the development of art history or really broader intellectual cultural history without an appreciation for the 18th century British art, especially. And we have a beautiful snapshot of the long 18th century with this show. It begins with Caroline, who was born in 1680, ends with Charlotte, who, is, who died in 1818. I mean, you could ask for no better uh, and finer synopsis of the richness of British art in the 18th century than what these women did. Well said, well said. And, and, you know, I love what you're saying, Tyler, that it's a, it's a four-hour experience because this is only one of the exhibits at the Yale Center for British Art. There are always several more as well as, you know, the permanent collection. So, you know, given how uh, much snow we just got, you know, folks should have lots and lots of time. You don't want to be outside, evidently, for another couple of weeks until it all uh, melts away. So it's, and hopefully it will melt away before April 30th when this exhibit ends. But I think it gives people lots and lots of time to come see the exhibit. Um, we'll do a reminder of all the dates and times and whatnot, but I want to turn back to you both because I think you're both really interesting. But but where are you from, Lisa? No. You're not from New Haven? I'm originally from California. Oh, but where's your accent yes, from? Yes, that's the famous question. <laughs> I did a PhD in Scotland. And for whatever reason, I picked up all kinds of bits from my various friends from various ports of the British Isles that have not gone off since I moved back. Wow. So it's your California accent then? Yeah, that's the underlying, the underlying bit, but I guess I would call it British Isles mix. I've mm-hmm. decided I've created a new accent. I love so. it. And you're in New Haven now, or you live nearby? Yes, I've been in New Haven for the last 15 years working at the British Arts Centre and at Yale. So. Great. What about you, Tyler? Are you in New Haven? I know right now you're, you're not. Yeah, I'm in New Haven for about 10 years now. Actually, the place I've lived longest in my life, believe it or not. never thought it happened in Connecticut. but Because um, <laughs> you're from originally elsewhere? I, I am originally from South Florida, Palm Beach. It's a nice place Grew to up there, think went about to college right now. Yeah, I wish I were there. My, <laughs> my high school buddy sends me photos every day. Uh, Indeed. How cold it is. Oh, it got down to 60 today. Indeed. Everyone's got beautiful fans, and I'm thinking, oh, it's four here, so. Great. Well, well, I'll, I'll toss this to you first then, Tyler, because you've said you unexpectedly are in New Haven for so long, and it'll give Lisa some time to think about it. But it's really about what, you know, what's kept you in New Haven for so long? What inspires you artistically, creatively? Are there places that stand out to you as, as, as anchors to you here creatively? Are there ideas that are creatively important to you about being in New Haven? Or is this all just happenstance? I doubt that. No, I mean, New Haven is a special place. Uh, you know, I don't know if you grew up in New Haven or from the area, but um, it is a, a vibrant, young city. Everyone's creative. You know, I, I'll go to restaurants or, or 
bars or what have you. And I'll see people sketching on napkins, beautiful things. Everyone's willing to uh, talk about crazy ideas. Uh, and I've, I've lived a lot of places from college to when I started grad school at Yale. And I tell you, you know, not, not a lot of locales have that same sort of uh, esprit and joie de vivre and excitement mm-hmm. about the littlest things. You know, it could be public art when you're walking uh, down towards the green. It could be, you know, museums like the Yale Gallery and the Yale Center for British Art, music. There's just no shortage of things to do around New Haven. And it really is a kind of special little enclave um, that has um, a certain magnetism. Mm, Well said. Lisa, any creative inspirations in New Haven, places that keep you filled up? Well, I mean, just Yale alone, there's so much. You could you could literally go to a concert or a lecture or some kind of presentation of something, museum visiting, obviously, mm-hmm. every day of the week and never quite run out of things to do. And that extends not only from Yale, but all across New Haven, going to, going to plays in some of the wonderful Long Wharf, some of the other wonderful theaters mm-hmm. in the area. It's a beautiful area. It's a w- wonderful place to live. I like the New England climate, surprisingly, for someone Ooh, from California. Yes. Don't mind the snow Even at today. All. Yes. So don't mind that at all. And in terms of being a scholar and being someone who's done a PhD and is interested in pursuing the scholarly stuff, the people that you meet here and the things that you can engage with and the ideas and the projects and the conversations that you can get involved with so very easily just by talking to someone who happens to be in your building one of our visiting scholars got me onto a project a few years ago, uh, a British AHRC-funded project, just because we happened to be talking one day, mm-hmm. and he discovered that I was working on a tomb that intersected with the project they were doing. He said, well, right, you need to come along and join us then. So just the <clears throat> opportunity for engagement of all levels mm-hmm. is wonderful here. So I'm very much enjoying it. Oh. I mean, it's one of the toughest days to be in New Haven today <laughs> because of all this weather, but that's really refreshing to hear that you love it and that um, hopefully you'll stick around, Tyler. Well, this is, um, I really, really hope people get a chance to see the exhibit, Weather Aside. Um, it continues at the Yale Center for British Art until April 30th, and it's called um, Enlightened Princesses, Caroline, Augusta, Charlotte, and the Shaping of the modern world and if you go to britishart.yale.edu you can find the details about when they're open the details about the programs that are coming up around it as well as all the other exhibits that are on view and and i should mention and it is important because summer's coming if you want to go on vacation i'm sure you and uh, at least and tyler are going to kensington palace in london that exhibit is going to travel over the Atlantic and be on view from June 22nd till November 12th. Um, I don't know. Why wouldn't you go see it? Sure. Both sides of the Atlantic. Why not? <laughs> I'm sure it will be, have some differences very subtly and certainly very, very different venues. So anyways, please get a chance to go to the Yale Center for British Art. It is completely free and it is definitely one of our most cherished historic and artistic um, resources that we have. Thank you both, Lisa and Tyler, for joining us on the show today. Well, thank you, Dan. And of course, um, like I said, this episode of Artbeat and all of the episodes on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio, is available streaming um, as a podcast on iTunes and on SoundCloud. And we'd appreciate it if you shared it with folks who 
you want to take to the exhibit, you think would like the exhibit, or maybe folks you think wouldn't like the exhibit, and you can bring them, and they can learn more about it to get them out and see it. Um, we'll be back in two weeks. In the meantime, take care. Thank you. And, you know, you can do this with anything. You can do this with me saying that Iris is an immigrant refugee organization.